we are going through a series on prayer at the moment, and we're not um, moving away from that. We're going to pause over all the elements of prayer. That's been our habit. I guess with the Lord's Prayer, we tend to race through it a little bit, don't we? That's been, our, been my habit, perhaps. And we pause, and we stop, and we try and consider every aspect of it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Those two concepts, we have the gift of being able to call God our Father, and yet his name is hallowed. He's our dad. We can cry out to him with the simplest request, and yet his name is hallowed. He's so holy, we can't even look at him. And these two things come together. This is how we talk to our God. We pray your kingdom come. And I guess we reflected that we don't actually always pray your kingdom come. Sometimes that doesn't always get a mention in our prayers. We're straight into our shopping list. But I guess the challenge for us is to think about God's big picture, God's coming kingdom. And last week we looked at Paul challenges with this idea that we, are, we ask for our daily bread. And we ask God to give us just enough. We ask, us, we ask God to give us enough, I guess, as the children of Israel did, so that we, that we form this relationship with him. And that we know that he will supply our needs. And we go to him to supply our needs with just enough. And our relationship grows through this. And today we come on to the next part of, of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And you, you might be thinking, that's not how I've heard it. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's a two-point sermon, really. So there's going to be the two-minute version at the start. And if you're not into church, if you just want a two-minute sermon, you've got that option tonight. Nobody will, th- well, perhaps, actually, that's not true. People will think very badly of you if you wander out. <laughs> me, me more than anybody else. But there is a two-minute sermon, and then it will broaden out into a longer sermon. Okay, so the two-minute sermon, forgive us our sins. We have a huge problem that only Christ can fix. We have a huge debt, and we're going to look and investigate this story that will explain that better than I can. We have got a huge debt that we owe our God. It's not always how we see it, but that is the true picture that this parable we're going to look at will open up to us. Forgive us our sins. And again, within that, Why is this part of the Lord's Prayer? We're going to look at that. You're thinking to yourself, I've prayed that prayer. The guy at the front, when I was a little boy or whatever, told me that if I asked for him to come into my heart, then I don't need to ask for that anymore. So we're going to look at why this is part of our daily habit with prayer. As we forgive those who sin against us. It's a prayer with an associated response that reveals the integrity of the prayer. So how God works with us should be borne out in how we work with other people. There is an interconnection between those two things. We can't separate them. And the prayer does that to us. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and says, these two things come together. As we understand our forgiveness from God, we forgive other people. It comes together. It's a bit like if you're serious about dieting, you don't hang out at Krispy Kremes. There is a There is a physical response to the decision that you've made. If you're serious about dieting, you hang out at a salad bar. You don't hang out at Krispy Kremes. If you're serious about quitting drugs, you don't hang around with a gang that are doing doing drugs. If you're serious about the girl, you talk to the girl. If you're serious about forgiveness, if you're serious about understanding God's offer of forgiveness to you, and you receive that gift of forgiveness, then you have to logically forgive Others. There's a passage in the Bible, isn't there, that says, by your fruits, you will know them. 
And there's this idea that Jesus will come back around. And this, this is what the Bible tells us. He doesn't come back around looking for church attendance. He comes back around looking for evidence of changed lives in people. People that have made a decision to follow him. And that's borne out in the fruit of their lives. This is interconnected. Love one another as Christ has loved you. Don't judge one another or you will be judged. Forgive others as you are forgiven. It's not just that in this part of the Lord's Prayer that we see this kind of teaching. This is what you would call thematic throughout the whole Bible. This is our pattern. We receive God's blessings. We, as we, God deals with us, we too should deal with others. I guess you could flip that the other way around and say, as Jesus often did, don't be a hypocrite. I guess that's the other side of the coin. Jesus would confront hypocrisy, I guess more often than not with the Pharisees, at every turn that he could make. And he wants us to do that by this instruction in his prayer. He says it's hypocritical, and I guess that's what the parable will bring out to us. If you receive forgiveness gladly, and you can't forgive other people. We are, I guess, encouraged to live like forgiving citizens of the kingdom. I want to read a bit of the story out again. I know that's not, not what we do. I guess the reading's been up and you've, you've heard it, but so much of what I say hangs on this, and I believe that Jesus crafts these parables so beautifully that we skip over them at our peril. So I'm, it's, you're going to think, we've just heard it, Ash. I don't need to hear it again. But I want you to really, uh, like abandon yourselves to the story, really focus in and think, what is this? This is a parable. What is, it's not just some empty story that we park Jesus is trying to tell us something. Tell us something about God and tell us something about us and tell us something about how those two things relate. So lose yourself in the parable. Really try and grab hold of it. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore... And here comes the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But, every good story's got a but, but, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Notice the disparity in the figures. He grabbed him and begged and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This 
is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The story starts uh, with a question from Peter. Peter would be, after the thief on the cross, my favorite character in the Bible. I love Peter. Excuse me. I feel like he opens up stories for us. Whenever he comes into a story, the story is immediately relatable because Peter does very human things. He's a very approachable character. Jesus is teaching in the, in the previous part of the passage on how you deal with sin in the community. And you can almost see the cogs of Peter's mind working as he works this through. And he kind of sticks his hand up and says, so how many times should I forgive my brother? And he makes a, what I assume he's going to think is quite a good guess. He says, seven. And I imagine the other disciples stood behind him. Some would be going, seven's a good, that's the perfect number. It's a good guess. Another one's going, oh, that's a poor guess. That's not going to be very good at all. And Jesus kind of slaps him round the face almost with his answer and says, no, 70 times seven is how many times you should forgive. 70 times seven. Kira's got a phrase at the moment. She comes up to me quite often and she'll say, I love you, dad, till the top of the numbers. That is the phrase that she uses. And it's just because, it's just because she doesn't know where the top of the numbers are. She wants to say, I love you as much as I can say. So the phrase that she uses is, dad, I love you to the top of the numbers. And I welcome that. And I get what she's saying. She loves me as much as she can. And that's what Jesus is saying here with this 70 times seven comment. This is as big a number as you can imagine. It's not that that Peter is to count up 70 times seven and then draw the line in the sand there. This is an infinite amount of forgiveness that Jesus suggests. Peter's suggestion shows our limits with forgiveness, I think. As human beings, we draw lines in the sand, don't we? We say, seven, I'll forgive this much. Are you familiar with language like this? If he does that again, that's it. I can't forgive him. If she does that one more time to me, that's it. Or something like, that is unforgivable. These are human and understandable responses. And Jesus teaches something that is just so difficult for us to get our head around. And in some respects, it exposes the preacher because he tells us to forgive limitlessly. We sing this song at church and it's become my favorite song and it's called Oceans. And I thought with it being called Oceans, it wouldn't have anything of significance. I thought that's likely to be a wishy-washy song. And I've sung it for ages and then I tried to learn it on the guitar and I had to look at the words and what the words said. And I realized perhaps why my summer's been so difficult because I was asking for something incredible. Spirit, take me where my faith is without borders. Let me walk across the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Take me where my faith is without borders. Take me somewhere out of my comfort zone. Take me somewhere beyond my mark in the sand. Take me beyond the seven that we live by. Take me beyond that so I get to know you better, so I can experience more of your limitless love. I guess this song reminds us what we want to ask for. And actually, what it does more often than not with me is it reminds me actually who I am. And I would, we've not sung it for a few weeks and I've noticed that, it's been on my mind. And I guess when we sing it again, we can think through what we're singing. Spirit, take me, take me out of my comfort zone. Take me beyond seven. Take me into the limitless territory that is God. Peter offers this suggestion of seven 
and he's left red-faced. I would say, I've got a few friends who've been grieved very badly, and I would struggle to tell them even to get up to seven times with forgiveness for some of the stuff that's happened to them. And yet, Peter's exposed because Jesus says, limitless forgiveness is where we're headed. We have limits with love. His love is abounding. We are full of ourselves. He emptied himself of everything but love. He became nothing. We keep people at a distance sometimes. He draws everyone, wants to draw everyone to himself. We hold a grudge. He forgives freely. Some application just for you to think about as we look at the start of this, of this parable. Tonight, as you, uh, I don't know if your habit is to pray as you go to bed, but as you, as you, if you do that, if you pray as you go to bed, count up to seven things that you've done wrong. You could start back from today and work your way back through. When you get to seven, I'm going to allow you to stop and just stop there at seven and say, thank you, God, that your love is not like mine. And actually, it's limitless. And you can end your evening prayers there. Maybe the wrong in your life, the debt is huge. And as you're faced with this challenge to forgive, you're thinking, I can't ask God that. I want to encourage you tonight that Jesus explains for us right at the start of this parable that his forgiveness is limitless. There is nothing that you can bring to him that he can't forgive. The story gets going then. Therefore, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt, and the servant falls on his knees. There is a picture here that we can easily miss, I think, in our lives. Debt, the debt of this guy is huge. And it's not just a story, it's a parable. It's telling us something about us and God. It's an accurate picture of us. I think we do, we do what is in our human nature and we try and think that other people are actually worse than us. And actually the wrong in our life is comparatively small. And it might be comparatively small. But in God's eyes it's still huge. It's still enormous. It's actually still a debt that is too big for you to pay. And as we follow the picture through, all we've got is God's mercy. We can't afford it. The debt's too big. I guess you could ask yourself, as this is the Lord's Prayer we're looking at, why is this in the Lord's Prayer? Why do we keep having to ask for forgiveness? Is that what God wants to create in us, people who keep asking for forgiveness? And I guess I I, I sort of touched on it at the start We are saved eternally if we come before him with a genuine confession. That's right. That's what you've heard, isn't it? That if you put your trust in Jesus, his blood washes over your sins and you're in a position that is saved. You're safe. Is that right? I uh, I borrowed my dad's car a few years ago. Just hold that thought. I'm going to come back to it. Sorry, I've I've dropped it there, haven't I? But I'm coming back to it. I borrowed my dad's car a few years ago and uh, we went up to Scotland on a holiday. I think... He offered it. He looked at my Ford Fiesta and thought, my son's not safe in that car. He's got kids now. I'm going to help him out. And he lent me the car keys, and we bombed up to Scotland. And we did bomb up to Scotland, St. Andrews, and we bombed back. And I gave my dad the car back, and we exchanged all the pleasantries and everything else. And it was fine. And then a couple of weeks later, my dad called, and he said, how was that holiday? 
in Scotland, Ash. I said, we've, we've had this chat, Dad. We've talked about the holiday in Scotland. We've covered this ground. He said, no, how was it? How was it? I said, oh, it was great, yeah. How long did it take you to get up to Scotland, Ash? I said, oh, it took me a while. He said, well, somebody sent me some pictures. In fact, the police sent me some pictures. And it informed me just how fast you were going. You had a smile on your face at 85 going over the M8. Yeah, I thought it was an 85. It was a 50, as it turns out, and I was in big trouble. And the nuts and bolts of mine and dad's relationship were fine. He'd not written me out the will. He'd not, and there's not much in the will, but he'd not written me out the will. And I'm still his son, and I enjoy the benefits of sonship. But there was a fracture in our relationship. And what I needed to do in that circumstance was say, look, Dad, I'm really sorry. I've messed it up. And Dad went, because he's a good dad, he went, okay, that's fine. And we moved on. And that is, I guess, helpful when we think about our position before God. We ask, what the sin in our lives that we have to repent for, our position is secure, but we have this ongoing battle with sin. Every guy that I read about this subject, there was this alliteration. And I'm just going to read it out to get my theology straight. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we wait for a time when we'll be absent from the presence of sin. So sin doesn't have this rule or reign in our lives. It doesn't have the ultimate authority. Christ has dealt with that. But it does remain a problem. And it stays around. And we have to keep an honest account before God. And it's so hard to do, I think. Because what do we do if we don't do that? What is the picture that we're saying to God if we don't have repentance as part of our daily prayer life? 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. If we claim to be without sin... If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. If repentance is absent from our daily prayer lives to God, in some respects, we're deceiving ourselves. It's not honest. Politicians really struggle with this, don't they? Admitting that they're wrong. And I don't harbor a grudge particularly against them because it must be very difficult. The second that you say, I've made a mistake, you're probably going to lose your job as a politician, so it's just not something that's in their vocabulary. It gets people so riled on question time. Often the questions from the audience are, just tell us the truth, just answer the question. And politicians, don't they? They don't admit wrong easily. And what they do, and how we receive them, is that they just look unhuman. That's the truth of it. By not admitting wrong, they just separate themselves from the rest of us and they separate themselves more and more and more by not admitting wrong and eventually you just think I don't really understand these people they're so far separate from me it's not honest it's not truth because we're all human beings and we've all messed up and to not admit to that deceives yourself there's some challenges I think that come from this we're not doing God a favor in becoming a Christian what we're recognizing is The debt's too big. We can't pay. I think as we live out a repentant lifestyle, I guess when we look at what the word repentance means, it is a turning around. It's not just a, I'm sorry about that. It's actually, I was walking this direction and now I'm walking this direction. 
When we do that, it's helpful, I think, to keep short accounts with God. Don't build up the debt. Be honest. Confess your sins. Sounds kind of old school, doesn't it, from the preacher at the front. And I'm a bit nervous to say it, but I think that's what this passage tells us to do. The story moves on. And I guess this is the part of the text where, it looks, where we look at the consequences. We, we forgive, we are forgiven, and then there is this interconnected response that needs to come from that. The servant is forgiven this huge debt, a thousand bags of gold, and he goes outside and chokes to death his colleague who owes him a hundred bags of silver. And Jesus, as I've said before, slaps us all in the face with his answer because as we listen to it, we agree with it, don't we? We say, how can he not show mercy in this circumstance? How, given what he's been let off with, how can he still harbor a grudge in this circumstance? How is there no mercy in him? And as we judge this guy, in some respects, we pour judgment on ourselves because it's a parable and this is about us. And the picture, I guess, is for us when we're driving along in our car and somebody cuts us up and that gets us in a bad mood for the whole day and we can't forgive or, or, our, or our wives or our husbands annoy us a little bit or the guy at work, you've actually been annoyed at him and held a grudge with him for four years. Because I think what happens a little bit when we hold a grudge, we actually quite like it. There's something in our human nature that says, I quite like that I've got this over you just now. I think it's particularly true in marriages and in friendships and relationships. It's quite nice to think, well, three years ago you did this, and I'm going to hold on to that. I'm going to keep that, and if ever I need it in an argument, I'm going to bring it back up, and I'm going to throw it back at you. It's a very human thing to do to hold on to the grudge, isn't it? And Jesus says, as we read this parable, this is you. This guy who couldn't, who couldn't overlook the wrong of his, little, of, his, of his colleague, of that hundred silver coins debt, this is you when you can't forgive your neighbor. This is you when you can't overlook the speck in your brother's eye and you can't get past the plank in your own eye. This is you. There's a helpful story in the Old Testament that I think sort of brings this together. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 15. It's under the umbrella of the Jubilee laws. God commanded his people to set the slaves free every seven years. Set the slaves free cancel all the debts and I guess a lot of the children of Israel will be saying well why why do I need to why do, why should we do this and God says to them in Hebrews in Deuteronomy 15 15 remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord redeemed you this is why I give you this command today because you know what it's like when you were in Egypt you had some sense of what it was like to be captive and to need liberated and I liberated you and because I did that with you I want you to respond to that blessing and forgive other people. There is an interconnected nature to how God has dealt with his people and how they should deal with other people. And why did God want this to happen? It says elsewhere that he wanted the surrounding peoples to see this, to see this seven-year jubilee, to see this seven-year release of debt, and to see God in it, to see that in it. So as they looked at his community of people, they could see God in it by their forgivingness. It's a great lesson for us as church when we think, how on earth 
can we reach the people out there? What on earth can we do to get them engaged with God? What on earth can we show them that's different? What can we do? If we are a community of forgiving people, then heads will be turned. They'll look at us. I remember um, probably about 20 years ago now, I let, I let a friend of mine who was 14 at the time drive my car and he stuck it in reverse and he smashed it into the car behind me. I was on a Christian camp and I knew the guy whose car he'd hit and I went over to him and I thought, I can't tell him that I've let a 14-year-old drive my car. That's just ridiculous. He's going to kill me. And I went over and said, look, I've driven my car into your car. I'm an idiot. I'm really sorry. And I got £100 out of the bank and I said, here you go if you need any more. And it was a nice car and I destroyed it. And he went to me straight away and he said, I forgive you. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. I must have heard, I don't know, a thousand sermons since then. Half of them touching on forgiveness at some point or another. And nothing has impacted me like the forgiveness this man showed me that day. Nothing has grabbed me like that. And actually, it's 20 years ago, and I remembered it straight away when I needed an anecdote. It, it penetrated my life, and I thought, yes, that is how you show people God's love. That is how you can change hardened people and point them towards Christ, by demonstrating forgiveness. And as I'm saying this, I'm going to guess that there's people in here, because there's a person here who is really struggling with forgiveness. It's really hard to do because people are horrible sometimes. People make life impossible. Forgiveness is not easy. It's tough. But what do we learn from this text? What do we learn from this passage? It's essential. We have been forgiven. God has looked mercifully on our lives. And as he has looked mercifully on our lives, it's logical that we can try and forgive others. It's also an incredibly powerful witness remember Nelson Mandela um, wearing the spring box jersey I don't know if you know any of the backstory of this but Nelson Mandela was captive for all those years and the spring box jersey is like a picture of, of in some respects the white supremacy that existed in South Africa and as the world, rugby world cup came to South Africa he volunteered to wear one and he handed the world cup trophy over to Francois Pinar a white guy with his spring box jersey on an incredible act of forgiveness that nobody in the world could overlook. And as we, as his people, forgive one another, we point people back to God. The story comes to a conclusion. The master called his servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. What this passage shows us is that running in perfect symmetry with how God has treated us, we should treat others. The king draws the conclusion at the end. This guy can't really have understood what forgiveness was all about he can't have done there's no way this guy's got this concept he can't have understood what it meant for me to cancel that debt if he had have done he would have borne it out by how we treat other people calvin puts it like this if we retain feelings of hatred in our hearts if we plot revenge and plunder any occasion to cause harm 
And even if we do not try to get back into our enemy's good graces by every sort of good office, deserve well of them and commend ourselves to them by this prayer, we entreat God not to forgive us. What you've got to think about when you say, Father, forgive me as I forgive others is what you're asking God to do when you say that. Because you're asking him to have a good look at your life. You're saying, Father God, forgive me as you see me forgiving other people. That's what you're saying. Look at me. I'm going to show you by my actions that I get forgiveness. For some people on their Christian journey, forgiving somebody can be the end of, can be the, end of the road for them. Somebody who's thinking about salvation, who's, who's, who's been wronged terribly in their life. And they've got somebody sat somewhere who they just can't stand. And actually, when they think about this idea of grace and responding to God's grace and forgiving somebody else, they just say, no, that's enough for me. I can't do that. I hate this person too much, and I want to hold on to that. And it puts them off God. For others of us, forgiveness can be an ongoing battle. We can get up one morning, because what happens with people is they don't know that they need forgiven. That's, I don't know if you've come across people like this. They just keep wronging you. And they don't know that they need forgiven. They don't know that that needs to happen. And you have to get up every morning and make a decision. You say to yourself, I'm going to be nice to this person again today. They don't know that they're wronging me. They don't know that they're bullying me at work. Or they don't know what's happening here. And I'm going to act forgivingly every day. It's an ongoing battle. I want to put a, a scripture under your nose. And I, I'm aware as I'm challenging you to do this, that I will be hit like a bullet with it when I get home because this is how God works. Do not judge and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it'll be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I want you to go away and think about the measure that you use. And remember that as the, with the measure you use, it will be measured you. I want you to go away and think about the mountain of debt that's on your back. This horrible picture that's put in front of us in this parable, this awkward picture of the debt that we owe God. And I want you to think about making <coughs> repentance, walking back towards God, part of your daily life. And I want you to know that it's really tough and it's really hard and somebody new will annoy you tomorrow and there'll be somebody else that you need to forgive. But keep in mind all the time the cross. Keep in mind God's perfect redemptive plan. Keep in mind his perfect forgiveness as we think about how we'll deal with others.